Hello, 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 and welcome back to the IBS Freedom Podcast Season 2. And we are back at it again, talking about digestion from north to south. That awkward dance that you just saw is, of course, my dear podcast co-host, my pod person, Amy. I'm Nikki. Hello. (laughs) We're like three episodes in. I'm still introducing myself. So that is a plus work on my part, if I do say so. Um, Amy, you want to maybe give give the audience a (laughs) one to two. Feels like pressure coming. It is. It is. Give them like a one to two minute summary of the last episode in case this is their very first time with us. And they're like, I don't know what they're talking about. Give them like a two minute summary. And then we'll pick off where we left off as the food is exiting the stomach. No pressure. Yeah. Okay. No pressure at all. But yeah, I think so we are on an adventure through the GI tract. Um from or it's not even just through the GI tract because the brain like we established and like seeing the food and uh, smelling food and things affect digestion but we're really taking you through like a north to south journey of the digestive process so first you know seeing the food smelling the food even feeling the food like the sensory experience the brain um, plays an important role in kicking off digestion. So even just seeing and being around the food is the like a big primary first step. And second, again, you're chewing the food. Chew your dang food um, is another big piece. That's our next where, t-shirt. Chew your dang food. Right. So you want to really make sure that you're chewing it significantly. And um, the mouth is where you're mechanically breaking that down breaking the food down by chewing, but also there's things like enzymes in your saliva that can help chemically break down the food as well. So once you swallow the food, um, then it goes into the stomach. And in the stomach, the food's really being mechanically broken down, but also chemically broken down. So the food's swirling around the stomach, churning in the stomach, and the stomach acids released, which helps really break down things like protein. It also helps with certain micronutrients um, digestion. So then, again, you need that acidity there because it helps to kick off digestion further downstream, which is what we're going to talk about today, which is more of like what happens in the intestines, both small and large. Um, But yeah, I think where we left off was like the chyme coming out of the stomach um and then we can kind of get into how that affects digestion um in the small intestines absolutely and first of all i may i i might just say round of applause for our gal amy thank you thank you thank you thank you that was a perfect flawless even two-minute executive summary wow Um, wow i'm gonna go there i'm gonna say flawless um, but yeah, like it's, you know, the first part of digestion, I think is arguably the most important. So everything you just talked about, like experiencing your food and slowing down and really taking it all in, but, mm-hmm. um, stomach acid is certainly important, especially what you just mentioned, what we talked about at the very end of the last episode, when we decided it needed to be a two-parter is the acidity is not just there to break down your food. It's also there mm-hmm. to activate enzymes like pepsin, but also the acidity of that mush called chyme as it leaves the stomach triggers a reflex in the small intestine that literally tells your pancreas and your gallbladder, hey, man, you need to secrete your juice. 
like, because they're smart enough to know, oh, man, that's like battery acid coming in here. And the small intestine is not equipped to handle something that acidic. So we'd better secrete things like bicarbonate to neutralize the acid and protect the small bowel. So it's, it's a really beautiful, ingenious mechanism that the body has for us. But the acid comes in, those two organs get the memo that they need to help protect the small bowel. So they release bicarbonate, which neutralizes the acid with their digestive juices like pancreatic enzymes and bile. And then you can kind of see how like even something like supporting stomach acidity can support not only protein digestion, but fat digestion, carbohydrate digestion, because all of these organs are working together. And they're, they're it's like a symphony. You, you can't have one without the other. Um, but I see a lot of people who jump right to the bile thing, or they jump right to the pancreatic enzyme thing. And mm. they could probably get away with a much cheaper supplement if they wanted to take a quote unquote digestive enzyme if they just took some betaine HCL and actually chewed their dang food. Yeah, it's a good point. I think that, you know, when it comes to digestive capacity issues, you always want to address the upstream issue first. So from like a hierarchy standpoint, because of just what you're saying, like, if the stomach acidity isn't there, like nothing's going to work downstream. Um, and it, yeah, again, it's, it's interesting. And, And I do think that like one thing, which I know we've been discussing more lately is how, like how much people think that they're not absorbing the food. So we'll get into this too, Mm -hmm. this conversation. But most of your digestion of nutrients actually happens in the pancreas. Or I mean, sorry, in the small intestines. What am I saying? There you go. Where like your pancreatic enzymes have been released, where your bile's flowing nicely, um, which again gets stimulated by the stomach Mm -hmm. acid. But that's like really where majority of your macronutrients, so your carbs, your fats... um, again, your protein as well, amino acids are being digested and absorbed. But then also your your micronutrients, so your minerals and your vitamins, like majority get digested and absorbed there. Yes, the yeah. stomach acidity is needed to break down and to help with absorption of certain minerals. But like most of your nutrients are going to be digested and absorbed in the small intestines. And I think, like, I forget what the statistic is, too. Like, of the surface area, the small intestines, it's, like, insane. Like, the the actual... Like, if you laid out the intestines and looked at the actual surface area, it's, like, the ten, a size of a tennis court or something. Something like that, um, yeah. Do you remember hearing that? Yeah, I think tennis court I, is what I've heard, too. Okay. that's um, what, Yeah, that's what I've heard. But, yeah, it's, again, like, it's, it's where you're going to be doing the majority of the digestion and the absorption but so much of what determine what helps determine how you're digesting the food happens upstream like we've been talking about i just had a brilliant beyond brilliant idea the best way to wrap your head around this imagery because if you're if you're sitting there thinking how could you get a dang tennis court into my innards and how does that like physically work and i'm a little bit older than you so maybe you won't remember this but i hope so Remember those scrunch shirts? I don't know what they're called, but the scrunchy shirts where like you pick it up and it looks like it's something for like a doll. 
right? But it's because it's so like scrunched in on itself. But then you like stretch it out a little bit and you're like, oh, this is like for an adult human. And it's, I think they were marketed as like one size fits all or very close to one size fits all. Okay. But it like, I'm going to have to Google this and show you a picture later now. But it's like, it scrunches down into nothing, this like nothing little piece of fabric. And then you stretch it all out and it looks like something you could wear. And then you could put it on and it was like very fashionable. I don't remember, like early 90s or something. Um, Right. I have zero idea what you're talking about. (laughs) But I think again, like... If you, I I get what you're saying though. Like it is painting a picture that's similar to the intestines for me. You where, you go ahead and talk. I'm gonna see if I can pull up scrunch shirt on my phone and see what happens. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think that it, again, and what we've talked about too is that a lot of people in the SIBO and IBS space will come to us and say, "I'm not absorbing my my nutrients," and you know that's where the problem lies where I think that the majority of the people that we see more so probably have digestive insufficiency than absorption issues. Yeah. Right. For the record, doing a Google image search of scrunch shirt pulls up a lot of tie dye, but it's not exactly what I was going for. So I, I think I see one right here, but the picture is not going to do it justice. So just for what it's worth, I tried. Um, Somebody, for the love of God, just comment on the YouTube video and tell me I'm not losing my mind. And you know what this thing is, is that I'm referring to. Um, Yeah, I, I honestly think when people think that they have malabsorption from SIBO, particularly, um, not necessarily like celiac and Crohn's, like that's a different ballgame. But with SIBO, I would say, I don't know, I think like 80% of it is insufficient intake of whatever the nutrient is. Right. And right. then like 20% is maldigestion. Like they don't have stomach acid. They don't have right. bile, but it's like, you've got to rule those things out or start working on them first before you jump right. to the malabsorption thing. And it boggles my mind every day. Like how many well-intentioned smart doctors are telling their patients they have malabsorption when they have literally no mm-hmm. proof of malabsorption. They have proof right. of low, right. you know, low serum B12 or low iron or low ferritin, but they have no in- indication whatsoever to prove that it's because of malabsorption. So, right. Um, I don't know. I, <sighs> yeah. Can I go on a slight tangent, by the way, before you finish your thought? Do it. Okay. Do it. I've got the crazy eyes. So um, I've been sharing little like tidbits, tidbits of knowledge and tidbits of frustration with you as I've been working on my practitioner course. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the ones that I found deeply, deeply fascinating is there was this idea proposed that there was what I will refer to now as SIBO syndrome, which is like the SIBO of yesteryear. Right. Cause like up until SIBO really came on the scene in like the early to mid 2010s, like I think it started to creep up more around like, you know, maybe 2010. And then it came on to like the public scene and the internet scene in like 2015 or something like that. Um, so it's been a gradual thing for about 10, 12 years. But prior to that, like if you go and look up SIBO research from like, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, or maybe even early 2000s, A, there wasn't a ton of research on it. B, it was considered to be very rare. Um, and right. C, it it was very frequently associated with malabsorption. 
and like even villus atrophy to the point where it could mimic right. celiac disease. Um, and, and like, you know, nutrient absorption absorption issues that could cause blatant B12 deficiency anemia, like really intense stuff. Um, so what's interesting is there was a paper I found that basically said SIBO, as we used to describe it, is a completely separate entity. And in that paper, they called it SIBO syndrome. Um, mm. SIBO syndrome means that the overgrowth of bacteria is such that it alters your metabolic processes or it alters your absorption of nutrients. Again, thought to be pretty rare. And then now there's, so there's kind of the rise of breath testing, very popular, very mm-hmm. widely available. And there's a very high likelihood that breath testing is overdiagnosing SIBO left and right. Then the aspirates, even the aspirates aren't safe because they can't make up their dang mind on what the criteria is for the aspirate cutoff. And right, kind of like the, the previously established um, threshold to call something SIBO was 10 to the fifth CFU per ml. Now, a lot of papers, including, including Dr. P. Mentals, <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. Dr. Pimentel, you know who I mean. Um, somebody at a conference said his name that way, for, for those of you who don't know that story. Somebody said his name that way at a conference, and I died laughing, and I will never let it go for the rest of my life. So every now and then I have to throw that out there because it's so ludicrous. Anyway, so um, Dr. Pimentel's group is one of the one of many groups now who uses 10 to the third CFU per ml, which is a heck of a lot lower. Yeah. But if you look back at some of these like SIBO syndrome papers and like SIBO of yesteryear, that is truly honest to goodness related to malabsorption. The levels ranged from 10 to the seventh to 10 to the ninth. So it's literally like at the far end, like Dr. Pimentel's group and the more more commonly used threshold now in 2022, the range is 10 to the third, which is the same thing as saying 10,000 CFU per ml, colony forming units, 10 to the ninth. I forget if it's one or 10 billion. Oh my so God. we're talking about the difference of somebody being told that they have SIBO and they have 10 billion CFU per ml, and yeah, that person has malabsorption versus somebody told being told that they have SIBO and they have 10,000 CFU per ml in their small bowel. And it's like the one of the things this paper really outlined beautifully is that those are not the same. We should not be right, calling those right. the same thing, and we should not assume that all the people getting diagnosed with SIBO right now have the the same symptoms and the same kind of presentation of the SIBO of yesteryear, or again, as they called it, SIBO syndrome. But little little noodle in your oodle to think about is that the SIBO that we're talking about nowadays is probably a lot different than what I would deem true SIBO, just for the record. Right. Like, like the old school SIBO was super severe super compared severe, to rare. It was like short to, bowel syndrome and right. a couple other things. Right. And like, there's, there's, it sounds like there's, you know, a very obvious root cause for some of the SIBO syndrome. Like if they have like a yeah. short gut or, yeah. you know, they have um, past surgeries mm-hmm. or something like that, that was leading to the, the SIBO diagnosis um, versus again, like some of the people that we work with where 
And even again, like, it makes you wonder because the breath tests, which I'm sure we'll get into in season two, but like the breath we need tests to do an not being ep- accurate. Episode. Right. I'll, I'll just say but that. like the breath test not being really accurate too, like, I don't know. Like it's, it's, it's such a, a wild jump almost to just say, oh, I have malabsorption. And it's not to say that yeah. like malabsorption doesn't exist because I've seen some clients that have, have had true malabsorption, mm-hmm. but it's more the exception, not the rule. I agree. Um, and uh, like what you said, like most of the time when I'm working with people and they're like, I have malabsorption, I'm losing weight. And I'm like, well, let's look at your diet. Eight times out of 10, they're not getting yeah. enough enough to eat um that's and again like i still and i still think people that feel that have issues with digestion or some of the people that say like oh i'm malabsorbing probably more have digestive insufficiency if anything Mm -hmm. that's that's causing problems than malabsorption um well that's going to be way more common than the malabsorption well i think too like Sometimes I've also seen people say that they have malabsorption because they have diarrhea or they say they have malabsorption because like they get a lot of bloating and that's not malabsorption in my mind is that you verify that you are eating enough emphasis on food over supplements, right? Like you verify that you are consuming enough of this nutrient for like an extended period of time, weeks or months at minimum and you monitor your levels in blood or urine or whatever the test might be, and your levels still do not budge, despite getting adequate intake, like, and again, in the absence of something that would cause digestive insufficiency, like, like, if you had that scenario, but you were on a PPI drug, we would not be surprised that you were deficient in iron or B12 or magnesium or whatever. So it's like, you kind of at the bare minimum, rule out the things that would cause blatant digestive insufficiency. Right. Make sure that the person is actually eating enough of these things with like food diary logs for an an extended period of time. And then if they are still deficient in iron or B12 or, oh, and remember too, with some of these, make sure that they're not actively losing a lot of nutrients. Like with iron, you could have a woman who's eating enough iron, who's not on PPI drugs, and you think, oh, gosh, she has malabsorption. Right. But if she has a heavy period, she's losing mm-hmm. a ton of her iron every month. So good luck to you trying to get the iron up. But, like, there's so many variables and there's so many things to kind of, like, check off your checklist when you're thinking about having the conversation with somebody about malabsorption. And I find that they're not usually checked off the list. Right, right. Yeah, I think that I think it's just because it's thrown around a lot in the SIBO space, malabsorption. And again, what isn't really talked as much about is nourishing your body properly. So I I think, again, just the popular discussions are more around breakdowns that are like, you know, sexier, like, again, I don't know, not that malabsorption is really sexier, but like, I feel like nourishing your body is not sexy. So like, I think we oftentimes want to jump to like the more medical issue versus maybe looking at what kind of things are breaking down. And, And I will mention too, that if you're not getting enough to eat, you could have digestive insufficiency just from that because your yeah. body doesn't have what it needs to make 
enzymes to make stomach acid to make bile. So again, it could be kind of one of those issues that compounds on itself um, to where you might think you're malabsorbing, but maybe you're, you're not getting enough nutrition totally. And Mm -hmm. that actually leads to more poor digestion and, and low output of some of these juices. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting discussion, and and again, malabsorption is very serious too. Like, like from a medical diagnosis standpoint, like I think it's kind of thrown around, like not as like people are concerned by it willy nilly. But is the word I would yeah, use. it's thrown around willy nilly. Yeah, it's a great way. Like it's kind of thrown around, like oh, I'm malabsorbing. Like if you're truly malabsorbing, like that that would be like a huge issue. Um, that would need to take like top priority over anything else. Also, um, I feel like if you did have true malabsorption, that's the kind of stuff that the GI doctors are usually going to pick up on. Right. Or I would hope they would. Because right. again, like they need to rule out things like celiac disease and Crohn's and like big right. honking tumors. Like they need to do their medical due diligence. And like, it, particularly if you're somebody who's gone to like, the medical GI doctors and they didn't diagnose you with malabsorption, but then like your functional doctor or your naturopath told you you have malabsorption. I I don't know. Like, I don't want to say it's not believable, but it definitely makes me more suspicious of that as a diagnosis. Um, mm. Cause it's like, right. If there's anything the medical community is good at, it's catching big glaring, OMG level stuff. And that's kind of what we're getting at is that malabsorption tends to be like big OMG level stuff. And Mm -hmm. I would hope that any GI doctor worth their salt would catch that. Um, Can I go back though, while I while I have seized the microphone? Um, Can I rewind us for like a minute to something you brought up? Yeah, the, the sexiness bit. And I know you said like malabsorption isn't sexy. I think if I could kind of like massage what you were saying just a little bit and tweak it yeah yeah um it gets people's attention yeah because like oh yeah i think you're right human beings have unfortunately we have a negativity bias and that is very apparent on the internet if you think of like a lot of the content that gets shared on the internet especially the kind of stuff that gets like an article written about it um, it tends to be more negative focused. I mean, I know that there are channels and there are pages where you can just look at kitten videos and I subscribe to all of them, <laughs> BTW. But like, if you look at like the news or if you look at even like quasi news websites like TMZ and Buzzfeed, like maybe Buzzfeed is not a good example of this, but you know, it's like, we don't hear as much of like the good things that the celebrities are doing. We hear worst breakup ever. Taylor Swift runs out of the building crying. And like, no, we hear about Amber Heard pooping on the bed. Yes. Yeah. So we hear about stuff like this. And (laughs) did you even know, do you know what I'm talking about or no? I did not know the name, but when you said pooping on the bed, I knew because my husband heard it on a podcast and told me about it. It was like, Oh my God. Well, Um, it's funny. Cause she, she like blamed the chihuahua, but like if you look at the pictures of the poop, like there's no way the chihuahua, like your little eight pound chihuahua pooped, like a human sized poop on a bed. It was just funny. It cracks me up. People, but yeah, people do and say 
weird, stupid things when they're caught and alive. Like, instead of just admitting, oh, I lied, they'll just double down on it to the point of ridiculousness. Um, I did not know about that part of it. But, um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, it's like, if you, you know, to go back to this idea of sexiness almost is like, if you're in a SIBO group on Facebook, what articles are you going to click on? And what podcast episodes and what YouTube channels, like what videos are you going to click on? If somebody goes on and shares an episode like this, where we're saying, no, you don't have malabsorption, you're going to be okay, you're not doomed. Or the one that's like, SIBO leads to malabsorption and I never healed until I found this one miracle supplement. Oh my God. And like, you know, it's like, it's, it's that like urgency. It's the negativity bias. I think also, I don't know. Like, I think that assuming that you have malabsorption and running with that, like it's, it's a way to maybe sell you more supplements and more treatments Cause then it's like, oh, now you're scared to death. And now when I try to come in and like sell you my $8,000 berberine or I don't know, whatever it might be. Like if I tell you you need to take 20 different supplements to nuke the SIBO, you're going to be super compliant and you're going to buy all my shit, pun intended, because you're terrified and you think you have malabsorption. So whether it's intentional or unintentional, I also think it's like a really good motivator to get people to buy into your treatment. And I think sometimes that happens, maybe again, maybe on a subconscious level. But yeah, Mm -hmm. it's like, the stuff that gets shared, and the stuff that gets clicked on is usually the scary stuff and the bad stuff. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm immune to that either. Like all of us have this negativity bias. Like I remember I did a webinar. I feel like it was like six months ago. I did I did a webinar. And no, maybe it was a year ago. Anyway, did a webinar. Everybody on the Zoom call was like, oh, that was really great. Thanks so much. This was really helpful. I have a lot of good stuff to go off of. And I got some emails saying it was really good. And then I got one person who emailed and was like this negative Nancy, like, ah, you made all these promises about the webinar. And then I didn't hear any of these promises. And they, and it was like, oh my gosh, yeah. And it was, I don't know how they missed like the three mistakes. Cause like I literally numbered them on the slides, one, two, three right. for one. But you know, it's like, and that was the third webinar out of three webinars. So I had gotten consistently good feedback from numerous people for all three of the webinars. And then I got one freaking negative person. What did my brain dwell on? What gave me insomnia right. that night? The one negative Nancy. And I, I was right. like, Oh, they were disappointed. And they think right, I'm horrible. Right. And Oh, whoa. And like, maybe, maybe I am a loser. I don't know. Like, but my brain like (laughs) spiraled with the negativity crap, even though I know about the negativity bias. And I was literally sitting there on the couch that night with insomnia telling myself, this is just negativity bias bullshit. You got good feedback from like, like 50 other people. And you're paying attention to the one negative Nancy, who also clearly wasn't paying attention because you literally numbered the slides with the mistakes, like you couldn't miss the big giant one on the screen. But like, you know, the person has brain lesions, don't worry about somebody who has brain lesions, who's giving you a hard time. But my brain was still like, Ugh, negative. Nah. And I and I had insomnia, and I had to like knock myself out with melatonin that night. Um, so yeah, anyway, I, I think that that kind of further explains the sexiness comment that you had. Yeah, yeah. And again, like, I think in terms of things that can 
break down per se. And like we said, if there's a breakdown upstream, focusing on those things first is probably a good idea. Or again, prioritizing those things first. But sometimes things that do help with bioflow or help with, um, again, an enzyme, certain enzymes can be helpful to help, again, if there is a digestive insufficiency in the small intestines of some sort. Um, And you can kind of see, although we are, we have been, or Nikki, I should say, has been doing some experience, experimentation. Whoa, why all of a sudden did I just have a stroke? Nikki has been doing some experimentation on whether some of these elastase tests are accurate across different tests. Um, Because we've seen some weird stuff with the GI map. Um, where like, again, it's shown low and then not low on other tests. So she's doing a little bit of, uh, I, I kind of want to like, I don't know what's, what's like scientists I can I would name you. Oh, I don't know. I don't she's know. Einsteining it. You're Einsteining these, these tests. I feel, I feel like that's a stretch. No, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know who we could liken me to. I would say more of like mad scientist kind of flair. Cause like, okay. If you think about the research I'm doing, it's all like poop testing. So it <laughs> kind of gives scientist? off a certain vibe of like mad scientist. It reminds um, me more of like the Frankenstein guy, but I don't know. That's the, comes to mind when I think a mad scientist. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. But I've joked, I was probably a scientist or a mad scientist in a previous life, but yeah. And you're right. Like it, and again, it goes back to show you, you have to listen to your body and your experience of these things. So Mm -hmm. I don't care if your test tells you that you have digestive, like enzyme insufficiency, or if your test tells you that you are like malabsorbing fat or like maldigesting fat, you know, like the GI effects and stuff like that, that has like steatocrit or fecal fat as a marker. I don't care if those things are elevated and telling you that you have this problem if you don't respond to the digestive enzymes or the bile supplements, why would you keep taking them? Like right, you right. could, you could have a GI map with an elastase of two, but if the enzymes don't produce any sort of benefit and you, you don't realize like, you don't know the difference when you take them or when you don't take them. It's like, well, why would you waste the money on them? They're not doing right, anything right. For, for you. Um, right. Maybe the test isn't accurate or maybe you're just like a non-responder to those enzymes and you need to try something else and right yeah so i guess it's another one for like objective testing is cool and it's useful but it's not the be all end all so don't get too hung up on it um Mm. like listen to your symptoms and your experience and if you try to treat the thing and you feel better then it strengthens the hypothesis that you had the thing if you treat the thing and you don't feel better then it weakens the hypothesis that you really had the thing right right um right but yeah, I, I honestly, like I've kind of gotten to the point too with practice that I don't have a lot of people that I recommend like enzymes to actually mm. like I, mm. most of the time I could get away with HCL and maybe some ox bile or some stuff for right. bile flow. Right. And then I really don't have to touch the pancreatic enzyme stuff all that much in my experience. Yeah. I think again, like it's, it's something I think it can depend, but yeah, I think too, like one thing to, to mention or that I've seen with enzymes is sometimes if there is like irritation of the stomach at all, like gastritis, Mm. sometimes enzymes can irritate 
as well. Yeah. So, like, that's one thing I'll throw out there that I've seen. If you have dabbled in enzymes and noticed a negative effect Mm -hmm. with them, then, um, again, it, it might indicate that you might have some irritation. Same thing with HCL. Like, if you take HCL and notice, like, oh, feel burny, um, probably working on maybe some some stomach lining support would make sense. And, um, and going back to the brain-based stuff, like, right, you know, right. meal timing, slowing down, really appreciating your food, eating food that you actually enjoy, eating with people right. that you love, like, that sort of stuff can go a really long way, even if you're kind of building up to a point where you can tolerate HCL or tolerate like stomach acidity better. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, I had another thought that I wanted to share while we're still in the territory of the small bowel. Cause remember yeah, people we're sure. still in the small bowel. Um, I want to talk to how all of this relates to food intolerances and food sensitivities and food allergies. Um, mm. Allergies, maybe not anaphylactic allergies. Like if you get, you know, if you're in contact with a peanut and your throat swells up and you keel over, like that's a little bit different. But um, like people who are diagnosed with sensitivities and like non life threatening food allergies. Um, so basically, what happens is the immune system is always monitoring and surveying for perceived threats. It doesn't know if something is really a threat, it does a pretty good job. But that's why sometimes our immune system reacts to things like pollen and foods when it doesn't really have to. It thinks that it's mm, a threat. Yep. Your immune system is well-educated, but it's it only has, like, the playbook. It only has, like... So it, it, I imagine immune cells with, like, a book with, like... On each page is a picture of another boogeyman that they're looking out for. Like, oh, okay, here's streptococcus. Oh, okay, here's staphylococcus. Oh, okay, here's pollen. And it's like, they've got this one page report on what the boogeyman is, and they're constantly looking around surveying. They don't have a totally complete picture of the boogeyman, though. Most of the time, the immune system recognizes things based off of segments of proteins, not the entire protein. It's a chunk of the protein. And where this comes in is that if you have digestive insufficiency, let's say you have low HCL, you are not going to break those big proteins into amino acids as readily. So you could picture a protein is like a very long pearl necklace and it has many, many pearls on it. The amino acids would be the individual pearls, right? If you're not breaking down the pearl necklaces efficiently into individual pearls, if you still have like chunks that are representative of like, half or three quarters or a third of a pearl necklace, that's the kind of stuff the immune system goes after. That's what ticks off an immune response. Because now instead of seeing a nutrient like an amino acid, your immune system sees these big fragments of protein. And if it matches closely enough with one of the proteins in its imaginary book that it's carrying around, that's what the immune system is like, ah, that is the thing I'm looking for here on page 42 of my handbook. I'd better get it. And then you're right. off to the races with a food reaction. Um, this is called molecular mimicry. It also happens with pathogens. Like if a bacteria has a, a protein on it that closely resembles something else, it can basically like 
the immune system attacks the bad bacteria and it can attack something else in the process. So like um, in this world, the anti-vinculin antibodies are the most famous for this. So like, right, you know, the bacteria makes this toxin, cytolethal distending toxin, and then your immune system attacks that toxin, but also a protein on your cells called vinculin looks very similar to that bad toxin protein. And it attacks both just to be safe. And then you get some autoimmune squirreliness that happens from that. So the same kind of thing can happen where it's like your your immune system is looking for these kind of medium and large proteins. And if more of those are coming through and getting to the gut lining, that's like more suspicious for the immune system. And that's where the immune system might start firing away at things that aren't really a threat. So if you are a person who has a lot of food sensitivities and food allergies and like weird food reactions, this also might be something for you to really look at. Right. I think a great point, a great point. It's like, <clears throat> if, if you're not breaking down foods, it causes inflammation because mm-hmm. of these immune reactions. Yeah. Um, no, it's a, it's a really good point. Um, do we want to talk about the colon? No. Yes. Good old, good old colon. The I mean, I think tube. The, the, yeah, the poop tube. <laughs> I think the, the interesting thing about the colon is that there's not, you're not really digesting much there i mean most of what you're doing is potentially absorbing water Mm -hmm. um more so than anything else i also think again it's interesting of note is um that you know certain microbes might make certain nutrients for you Mm -hmm. um again like i think i think we've talked about it before like probably a lot of the nutrients are being cross-fed between different bacteria so you might not absorb a ton Mm -hmm. of those nutrients. Um, but there's also some that we do seem to absorb some at least from what our gut produce. So, but yeah, I think like from an, a, an absorption stand or from a nutrient standpoint, most of the nutrients are going to be absorbed in the small intestines. And the main thing is that the large intestines is more going to be absorbing water. Yeah. Um, more so than anything else. I think that's sometimes too, like when you have diarrhea really intensively, you can become dehydrated Mm, mm -hmm. because that water isn't really being absorbed efficiently. Um, So yeah, I think, I think that some people can benefit from like managing their electrolytes a little bit better. Um, At times if like they're, they're dehydrated, whether they have diarrhea or not, um, it can be helpful there, but yeah, I think the main thing about the colon of note is that it's where we're going to be absorbing water. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think mostly what it's known for and just being like the bacteria frat house and hosting that party. So that for sure too. Um, and, and yeah, if you think about it too, like, you know, you're bringing food in and it's getting broken down and massaged and digested and you're mixing it with juices and you're doing all these these chemical reactions you're absorbing what you're able to absorb and then by the time anything gets down to the colon it it's essentially waste by that point right, right? like right. that's that's the leftovers that you were not able to absorb so it's all of like the roughage and the fiber but that's exactly why our gut microbiome is so freaking cool because we can take that garbage instead of just pooping it out as is mm. we give ourselves the time and the space 
to not only absorb the water, so we're not losing water as much, but we're also hosting these microbes that then extract out some of some of the crap, literally, that we can't digest. And then they do something useful with it. And they make anti-inflammatory molecules, they make some neurotransmitters, they make some vitamins for us, they communicate with our immune system, they communicate with our brain, like they interact with our metabolism, they're just really cool, they're doing so much for you. And it's just it's kind of an interesting thing to noodle on, like what would happen if we didn't have that, and we just like pooped everything out once it got to the ileocecal valve, right? So like from the, well, from again, the ileocecal like you... valve to the external anal sphincter, we just like delete all of that. And I know there are people who have had their colons removed. Right. And sometimes this is what happens. But sorry, continue. No, that's what literally was what I was going to say is like if someone had like an uh, uh, ostomy or of, yep. of some sort where they've had their intestines removed, it does get a, it, it is a little bit strange, I think, to not have things flowing through a colon um but yeah i know i think it's an i think it's amazing i i feel like it's a good moment to just appreciate the microbiome i i feel like so much of the people that we work with and i understand why but there is a sense of i'm like wrestling with this microbiome or i'm wrestling with like these bad bugs or whatever and it's like I don't know, like, and, and it's funny because I find that a lot of the, my clients, you know, the microbial fighting has not yielded any results. Um, so again, like having some appreciation for the microbiome and, and sort of what we know and what we don't know and, um, you know, just respecting the little bugs in there a little bit more, I think is always a good lesson because it's very easy. Whoops. It's very easy to want to wage war just because of the messaging that's out there. Um, and again, just acknowledging that these bugs, you want these bugs there. They have a purpose, yes. you know, and things could get a little bit out of sorts or imbalanced at times, but Again, the more I think you can respect the the microbiome, the better. Um, yeah. Versus just trying to be like, eh, "F you!" Like I'm gonna throw a whole bunch of antibiotics down my gullet to just neutralize you or yeah, or to whatever. Kill you. I don't know. Well, it's right. It's like any other roommate situation, right? Like I don't care <laughs> who you've lived with, if it's a roommate or a spouse or your own dang child. Sometimes you just drive each other crazy. And sometimes it's not the most harmonious relationship. But then, yeah. you know, you move past your issues, you, you know, or whatever. Like, you know, I love my husband and my child dearly, but sometimes they drive me insane. And that's okay. Like, I'm not gonna, like, get rid of them anytime soon. Um, and it's right. kind of like that. Like, I joke that the microbiome, those are your roommates. And, you know, roommates can have disagreements, they can get a little persnickety at times. But if you think about it, to kind of wrap up this episode, because we're almost, we're almost to the anus people, we're really close. Um, I don't know if we have anything to say about the anus specifically. But now I feel like I've set the stage that we have to talk about it somehow. Um, yeah, I didn't know. I didn't know rectum. we were going to the anus. I don't I mean, I like, 
start to finish, right? It feels like we need to mm-hmm. marinate on that for a second. I'll buy you a minute while you process that. Um, th- since I'm now putting you on the spot for this. Um, if you think about <laughs> the microbes and the microbiome, A, I think that they are way smarter than us. Like collectively, right. right? I think they're way smarter than us and they're really good at surviving. Uh, that being said, your microbiome is not stupid enough to actually be attacking you in the sense of like, to get extreme, your microbiome does not want you to die. Because if you die, guess what happens? There's no more food coming down the food tube. And then they starve and they also die. And that would kind of stink. I mean, it would actually stink, right? Come to think of it. But it would stink in multiple ways if they were living inside of you and then you keeled over and kicked the bucket and then you were no longer feeding them and then they would keel over and die too. So your microbiome actually wants you to live a very long, very healthy life so that you can keep feeding them yummy food forever and ever and ever and ever. If you could live to be a thousand years old, I guarantee your gut microbiome would be fully on board for that because that means that they get a ride on this planet for a lot longer too. And again, it's like this, and, and I totally get why people are at this place where they feel like they've been at war with their gut. They feel like they're at war with their microbiome. They've been told by so many people that they have to kill it. They have to starve it. Like I get why people land there. Um, But I just try to remind people every now and then that your gut is not out to get you. Your gut does, your microbiome doesn't hate you. They're not like the evil boogeymen that are trying to, you know, eat you alive or steal all your food. and, And they're not out to get you. They really want you to live a long and healthy life. But They're also not stupid. If you think about SIBO from this perspective, we just covered the whole digestive tract from mouth to the esophagus, to the stomach, to the small intestine, to the colon, to soon to be discussed, the rectum and the anus. Now I'm setting the stage for this. Amy's dying. Um, And if you think about it, if you think about it, which microbe is going to get better access to more yummy food, the microbe that's like one inch away from your rectum, or the microbe that's in the first part of your colon called the cecum, or the microbe that lives in the small bowel. Generally speaking, more food is up by the food hole Mm -hmm. at the food end of the tube, right? So like, the higher up they can creep, and they can establish a colony, they're probably just getting much better access to food. So SIBO, I think, actually makes a total amount of sense from a microbial standpoint, because it's like, right. it, you know, it's like if we inhabited a new planet, if we, if we all got on a rocket ship, you know, the penis rocket ship from What's-His-Face, the Amazon guy, <laughs> if we got on his Jeff penis... Bezos. Yeah, if we got on Bezos' penis rocket ship right now and went to Mars... And if they were like, okay, guys, welcome to Mars at orientation. And they're like, okay, um, this one part of the planet, like right at the equator of Mars, has lots of plants and animals and food and like apples and snickerdoodles. It's great here. But if you go even like a mile away from the equator of Mars, there's nothing. It's like a barren wasteland, desert. There's no food. There's no water. Where do you think all the humans are going to live? As close to the food as humanly possible, because we're not stupid. But I feel like that's what the bacteria do with SIBO. It's like they're just trying to establish a colony as 
close to the source of food as humanly possible. And the source of food is your mouth. And they know that. So it's just mm-hmm. they're trying to outcompete all of their neighbors and get closer to the food whole end of the tube, not the exit. Right. So, oh man. Anyway, oh. anyway, um, wrap us up with the anus and the rectum, Amy. Go ahead, take it away. Well, the only thing that comes to mind in a major way is like you know how when you eat food, a lot of times that's when you have to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't remember what the reflex is called. Do you remember the ref- the reflex? I don't. Uh, it's like no. Do you know what I'm talking about though? It's like the I rectal, do. some sort of rectal reflex. But basically, when you eat <clears throat> food, the reason you have to like go to the bathroom is because like there's a reflex that's pushing everything to different parts. Mm-hmm. Like it's moving everything to different new parts of the intestines. But you need to make there room. also is that. Right, there's that reflex in the in the rectum to like release your food. So, mm. just a fun fact: there is like some sort of reflex in the rectum that when you eat makes you want to go to the bathroom. And th- that's all I can think of uh, t- to leave you with about the rectum at the moment. Um, I, you know, that was pretty good. I I am impressed. Yeah. Again, you get another round of applause because I threw that at you. Just to screw with you, and you totally—I was sweating. I was sweating. I know, and you pulled through. So you do very well under pressure. Um, I will add one more thing. Thank it's you. not the rectum, but I want to remember to get this in here. Um, bile is really fun. We have a whole episode on it. As a matter of fact, if you go back mm. to season one, but remember that bile is released from the gallbladder, and then it makes its way through the small intestine, and then it gets picked back up into into your body and it makes its way back over to the gallbladder again or the liver um but it's something like 95 percent of your bile acids get reabsorbed in the distal ileum which is the very 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 tail end of the small bowel um so that's just a fun little aside as about the intestines is that bile really only should be abundant in the small intestine and then you suck it all back up Cart right. it back up, and that way you don't have to reinvent the wheel and make new bile acids every time you want to digest something. Um, and well, and can I add? Can I? Oh, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, no, I'm going to cut you off. I was just going to add that um, one thing that's interesting of note, and it kind of makes me wonder a little bit about like just people that have had success with this or not. Is like rifaximin is bile activated, so like if there's problems with like bioflow or anything like that it could lead to rifaximin the drug that the antibiotic that that treats SIBO which again they say it stays in the small intestines because it's bile activated Mm. meaning that Mm. when the bio gets released it gets activated and then when the bio gets absorbed it kind of gets deactivated but Mm I, I often wonder, like, some of the people that haven't had as much success with rifaximin, if it could be a little bit as a result of poor bile flow. Mm. It could be from other things, too. But yeah. just kind of a an interesting thing about bile in regards to SIBO and treatment if you've taken rifaximin before. Well, and another thought on that line of reasoning, yeah, if you have poor bile flow, you would think that rifaximin would not work as well for you. Also, if you have bile acid malabsorption, meaning the latter part of your small intestine is not sucking it up and recycling it, 
and the bile acids make it down into the colon, guess what? This drug that's like, oh, it's totally safe, guys. Don't worry. It doesn't go to the colon anyway. Wink, wink. You're totally good. Maybe, wink, wink. It is going to the colon in some people. And I know, like, I've seen in groups, people say that they got C. diff from taking rifaximin or they got, you know, like antibiotic-associated diarrhea from rifaximin. So it's not completely without consequences. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting point with the bile. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and again, we have a whole episode about bile. So yeah, I just, again, like it's a, it always just makes me wonder a little bit like, Hmm, like I, I like in a sense that it, it does just kind of target the small intestines. Mm -hmm. I think that is really unique, but Mm -hmm. it's like, if the thing that makes it target the small intestines is malfunctioning in some way, yeah, then maybe it's not going to be as effective for some people compared to others. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, Valid point. Valid point, my friend. Well, um, I, I'll share one more thing too, is that again, going back to the microbiome makes you a lot of cool compounds and keep in mind, like something that's made in the colon could have far reaching effects on your body, including your nervous system, your stomach, your intestines. So I think also one thing I'll notice that maybe the temptation with some of this, and certainly the temptation with SIBO is to isolate down to just one area of like, Ooh, okay. They, they made it sound like the stomach is my primary issue. I'm just going to laser focus on the stomach or like, Oh, I have SIBO. Therefore my problem is the small bowel and I'm going to ignore the rest of the stuff. But hopefully in this episode, we painted a picture that everything is connected, certainly within the gut, but also outside of the gut. Um, and just trying, trying to build yourself a, a healthy, resilient, happy gut is really the name of the game. No matter if your diagnosed condition is in the stomach, in the small bowel, in the colon, in the pancreas, it really all boils down to the same thing, which is try to build yourself a happy, strong, resilient gut. And then I think that great things will follow. But I don't know a better way to wrap up the episode. Can you think of anything, my darling? No, I can't. Okay. I think you did a good job. All Congrats. Right. Likewise, likewise, I put you on the spot twice and you were a rock star. So A plus to oh you. Um, well, guys, I'll close <laughs> this out then if we don't have any other tidbits to titillate you with. Thank you for tuning in, as always, for the IBS Freedom Podcast. We will see you next time. Next week, we are back in the swing of things, season two, so you can look forward to a new episode each week with your gal pals, Nikki and Amy. And as always, if you're on a podcasting platform, we would deeply appreciate a five-star review if you think we earned it. And if you're on YouTube, go ahead and, you know, like and comment and subscribe and do all the normal stuff on YouTube. But we will look forward to seeing you back here next week with another episode about the gut and you know, the, the human experience. That's what we should just rebrand this. It's not about the gut anymore. It's about the human experience on some level over and out. Right. Exactly. Exactly.